It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. Hope everybody's had a good week. I want to thank everybody for listening to our last podcast. Uh, on favorite album openers. Got a lot of good uh, uh, reaction on social media, uh, people pointing out things that we uh, forgot about. And as as usual, uh, they were probably right. But when you're just trying to do five or six album openers of all time, um, you're going to uh, you're going to forget some. So uh, anyway, really thank everybody for listening and engaging with us on social media. If you get a chance, follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed. And subscribe on Apple uh, Podcast and SoundCloud to the podcast. And uh, go on Instagram, Digital Kill the Radio Star Podcast. I'm trying to be more active with that. And so we hope to have some stuff up uh, for this episode. So uh, Chris is uh, getting a week off this week. So I invited back my buddy Kyle Null from the Mad Madrigals podcast. We had him on for uh, our Noel Gallagher post-concert uh, review and Kyle had at the time had about 10 or 12 podcast episodes recorded but had not released any of them and I think coming on our podcast was the nudge that he finally needed to uh, to get those on the air so uh, I've, before I introduce Kyle I want to say he does they do have Twitter it's called mad Madrigal, at mad madrigals they have a website madmadrigals.com and it's a really insightful podcast uh, has a decent, probably about half of it uh, or so uh, involves music to some degree or, or stories about music. And then others is just uh, their musings on life and death and empowerment and uh, <laughs> enjoyment. So uh, anyway, without uh, without further ado, welcome back, Kyle. Man, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. This is one that we talked about, I guess, when we were in New Orleans at the Gunnell Gallagher show. So hey, we need to do a Pink Floyd. Thing. Yeah, but yeah, we do need to do a Pink Floyd one, and so yeah, I'm totally excited to be back. We've got about ten or so episodes out right now. Uh, we just released one on, I think it was called the Power, Responsibility, and Philosophy of Superheroes, and so that gives you kind of a hint of it's a Batman versus Superman battle, but we we really bring in these global philosophical. Uh, constructs. So that hopefully that'll be fun for some of your folks to listen to. But my favorite one so far was the uh, episode where uh, you talked about your first uh, concert experience and uh, or, oh yeah, and you went to the uh, Fish concert and were really puzzled as to why the grilled cheeses cost twenty dollars. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, we just got back from Wani Festival uh, and saw widespread panic. Phil Lush and friends, George Porter, Marcus King. I actually met Marcus King and threw that on the threw that on Instagram. And that was actually that's one of our biggest hits. Uh, we never really had anything go viral before, but that one, as soon as it got posted and Marcus King liked it, mm-hmm. it just went <laughs> and it went everywhere. I know we had that happen with um, my buddy Gage did a My Morning Jacket episode with me. And, uh, you know, it, it, the downloads were fine. And then about two weeks after we released it, my morning jacket retweeted it. And then, uh, the little counter on my phone showing the download sounded like a slot machine going off for a couple of days. So, and, uh, we had the same thing happen when, um, we did our drive by truckers episode, drive by truckers liked it and retweeted it and uh, actually cool. found out that Patterson hood listened to it and, uh, sent word that he really enjoyed the podcast. So that's cool. That was really cool. So, Kyle, there's a couple of um, news things I wanted to ask you about first. Uh, you're a huge Guns N' Roses fan, right? Yes, absolutely. So, that was a big tease over nothing this past week, do you think? Oh, gosh. I mean, have you seen the price? Well, so, to prep it, right? So, they, they had, the, it was a viral marketing thing. They had all these uh, billboards in multiple countries that just said destruction is coming, and it had the date of uh, May the 4th. And it had the five original members from the uh, from the album from the Appetite album, the way that they were painted on the cross, and but they had those five. And so, every, of course, everybody went straight to it's a reunion of the original five. Well, if you've been following the band at all, you'd know that Stephen Adler's brother just recently went on radio stations and just basically bashed Slash and Axel and the various folks um, for not including one of the original members in this in this lineup. So, you know, as soon as that came out, I thought, well, either that was staged or he just doesn't have good information or it's not going to happen. Now, to, to their credit, they were all denying there was going to be a reunion up until it happened. Oh, too. sure. Yeah, so. And that was a very, that was a fairly well-kept secret. I will say about a year prior to it, there was rumors, but there had been little baby rumors before, but nothing like this one. And it seemed to have come from a reliable source that had also leaked several other kind of reunion things. I don't know who the guy was, but somebody in the music industry. But same thing with Izzy. If you've been following Izzy, he said he didn't do it because they wouldn't split the loot, is yeah. the way he put it. And so I was very doubtful that it was gonna that it was gonna happen. They were definitely gonna take my money if it if it did, because I would love to see that lineup. Even if it's not as tight and as solid as the current lineup. To just still, that was the band that made me love music, you know, and so and made me pick up guitar, and so because of that, I was definitely going to be in. Well, so then it's a box set. I'm like, well, we figured the the one of the greatest, um, uh, what do you call it? Just intro album. The intro is not the right word. Uh, first albums of all time from a band, never been remastered before. And it was it was mixed and mastered in the eight late eighties, so it's like it's a different time now, you know. Uh, we we think about drums and bass and all that in the mix a little bit differently than we do now. So I'm excited that it's coming out, but that box set is a thousand dollars, and so uh, I was just checking it out today. They've got various other limited editions, you know, with vinyls and all that. I'm I'm gonna as big of a fan as I am, I'm settling on the thirty dollar, you know, double disc CD thing and maybe the the two LP vinyl. Um, as well for another $35. Well, the song that they released yesterday, I thought sounded really good. Have you heard it? Is it Shadow of Your Love? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it before. I didn't hear it that they just released it, but that's been kind of floating around on the internet for... I I think they really missed on opportunity because, you know, they've toured basically for two years with the lineup they have now. And obviously, if they go out a third time, the demand is not going to be quite as high. But 
Yeah. If you if you exhaust that touring with the first two, and then you're like, Izzy and Adler coming back, we're playing Appetite top to bottom. You're you're right back in football stadiums. Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, to me, it's just extremely selfish. Because be honest with you. Izzy Stradlin, man, if it wasn't for him, Appetite for Destruction probably wouldn't have come off the way it did. He was the backbone. I mean, he was the backbone. And I've heard Izzy, I read an interview where Izzy said that when they once they kicked Steven out of the band, it was no longer Guns N' Roses because he his style of playing was... In, you know, I don't think he enjoyed playing with Sorum at all. Mm-hmm. I thought he was kind of like a robot. Right. Whereas, you know, Adler's not perfect at all, and that's what, you know, yeah. makes it sound good. Because I definitely would have gone to see the original the original lineup. It would have forked out a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To see that. So... Um, so you're not going to get the thousand dollar box? No, I can't. As big of a fan as I am, I just can't do that. Because the thing is, they put damn near everything in there. I mean, they put one. There's bandanas and there's little lapel pins. There's like and, coins. Yeah, and I mean, so I, as big of a fan as I am, I just don't want that stuff, you know. And I can't even imagine what it would be. I just want. What are some of the studio outtakes from that time? They've got several from Sound City, several live recordings of things that ultimately made it on Live Like a Suicide, but it's not the Live Like a Suicide EP. It's just the songs that were they were playing live at the time. And The Shadow of Your Love, which was originally recorded for Appetite, but just never made the album because they kind of had their ballads and they kind of had their... They had the album structure already in place. And that's just... Of the times I've tried to write a song, it always, for one, turned out bad. But two, I couldn't imagine writing enough songs and just saying, yeah, this is a really good one. We're not going to use it, and it's just going to be nowhere for 30 years. Right. That blows my mind. Right. Don't even get it. Yeah. Yeah, I I was looking at the contents of it, and I'm like, why would I want a Guns N' Roses coin? You know, this is just just junk to drive up. The price. I mean, I'm going to get it on vinyl, and I'll get the, uh, yeah, you know, the, the songs that haven't been released. But well, an appetite on vinyl sounds great. Like the release they did about seven or eight years ago, when vinyl was first really coming back, um, that was a really good uh, version. If they do the same thing with Use Your Illusion One and Two, I'll be a purchaser of those two. But the, the ones that are out right now are made in the Czech Republic, and they sound like garbage. Um, I mean, and truly, like. When you when I put it on the when I put it on my, my record player and I started spinning the first thirty seconds I thought something's wrong with my system like I, I something's just not right no it's the album and I went on some audiophile kind of forums and yeah people have been trashing them just saying like because it wasn't mastered for vinyl is what they were saying I don't know if that's true or not but was it one hundred eighty gram. It's one hundred eighty gram and there's some even questions about whether that really matters other than it just keeps the I mean, the record just has, has more sub, yes, substance to it. But in terms of dynamic range and all those sorts of things, from what I gather, there's a separate mastering process that you do for CDs versus vinyl. In 1990, 1991, when they were mastering this, it was on the tail end of what vinyls were. So they were mastering it for a CD release. And so I feel pretty confident with uh, how the band has been managed since everyone's departure except Axel's that they just didn't go back and remaster it, but they pressed it on vinyl to sell some stuff. And that's to me, that's what it sounds like. It just doesn't sound quite right. I'd rather listen to it on a CD. Yeah, that's the dirty little secret of a lot of vinyl. You'll see it's remastered, but it's remastered not from the analog. It's remastered from the digital file. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically just charging for CD quality on on a vinyl. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my feet wet in the vinyl uh craze right now and uh it's not cheap no it's not cheap it's satisfying 
but it's it's uh, it's not cheap, and I and I gotta admit, of all the vinyls that I have, I don't regularly listen to them because you really need to have a listening session, you know, like because you have to be willing to get up every twenty two minutes and then flip aside. Right. And when I'm working, because I you know I work at home, as you know, I like to have it just something constantly on in the background, and I don't have to think about it. I like for it to just swap, you know, just to to blend into the background and just create my day for me. Mm-hmm. You cannot do that with a vinyl. I love to sit down and sip, you know sip on a drink and just listen to a vinyl and know that I'm going to get up and flip it and just that's right. part of the process. But, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, and de- so and de- depending on the song, sometimes you just get one song. Oh, yeah, I was Echoes. So yeah. I've got the original uh, pressing 1971 of Pink Floyd Echoes. And I got it because, one, I'm just a huge Pink Floyd fan, but I also heard that the inner wax ring that they had, uh, once it got to the middle, you know how most records just go... Mm-hmm. when it gets to the middle well i had heard that they had put a raindrop on there so it had like a little dripping sound um when it got to that middle part and it just did that forever until you lifted the needle up and so i was excited i got it and i got it home and apparently they must have put it on just select pressings or maybe the uk pressings or something mm-hmm. like that because it's not on mine but yeah the second side is echoes one song 20 minutes it's echoes and that's it amazing song one, one of the all-time the great epics. That's the song that changed. I was just watching, the just, just to kind of do a little preparing for this, since we're about to cover one of the most iconic albums of all time, I wanted to feel like I did it justice, right? And so uh, and in my preparation for this, which I usually don't do for podcasts, we were just talking about this, I usually just kind of wing it, but on this one I wanted to I wanted to make sure I revisited it, because as much as I love Dark Side, I don't think I've listened to it front to back in a couple of years. You know, I'll pick a song here and there, but not really critically analyze it and so that's one of the things on making of the dark side which is one of the vh1 classic rock albums you know um documentaries that's what they talked about was echoes was the song where we really found ourselves and it was specifically in one line strangers passing on the street by chance two separate glances meet i am you what i see is me and that was when they all kind of came together the band has separately said that was the line that was the song and the line where we started to find our voice and we went from the psychedelic noodling of prior to that to saying, okay, well, let's do the psychedelic space stuff, but let's do a song structure and let's really capture harmony and that sort of thing. And that's what, it it wasn't Dark Side right after that. It was Obscured by Clouds, but right after Obscured by Clouds, that's that's when Dark Side came in. So before we talk about the album, Dark Side of the Moon, um, a little bit of your history on how you became such a big Pink Floyd fan. Gosh, I mean, I'm sure just like everybody else, you know, you you can't help but hear it on the radio. I mean, even if you're not seeking it out, money finds you, you know, comfortably numb somehow finds you. And so I had heard those things before and I was casual. I mean, it was interesting when I heard it, but to me, you know, it was nothing, it was nothing different than Creedence Clearwater or any other band that I was like, oh yeah, I kind of like Proud Mary, you know. And so when, um, I was a casual fan, but there was one day, me and one of my buddies, um, his, his name was David as well, so me and one of my buddies were at his sister's house, and I, I think her husband was just, he just happened to be playing The Wall, and I had never really heard The Wall, I'd heard another Brick in the Wall part too, We Don't Need No Education, that was just, you know, pro- proliferated the airwaves. Well, once we got past that song, we got to Mother, once we got past Mother, we got to Goodbye, Goodbye Blue Sky. And when we got to that song, I was just like, wow. The dynamics between the dark and the light 
it sounded good. The harmony. I never knew that you could have a song that sounded like that. Because I'd only heard poppy kind of stuff up until that point. Even Pink Floyd poppy, and I'm using kind of air quotes when I say that. That was the first song that made me realize they were a different band. You know? Um, and so, from there... I started my foray into the wall, and I just got absolutely absorbed in it. And I listened to it nonstop, probably for a couple of years, legitimately a several years. And each time I listened, I picked up something new. I mean, it was you, you just couldn't take it all in at one time. And so from there, it was sort of another happen. So the drummer, I was in a band in high school, and the drummer, his um, he had this projector that was uh, in our basement where we, with all the music was set up. And he said, listen, I've got this new Pink Floyd thing called Pulse. This is 96 or so, or not maybe 97, um, which is a couple of years after Pulse came out. So he had it on VHS. He pushes it in, he puts it in the, the VHS and puts it on this big, just blank white wall. And I swear to God, I didn't move for two and a half hours. I mean, I sat in a beanbag and watched Pulse and did not move. And from then on, I was hooked. Absolutely hooked. You're not the first person that's uh, that's done that. <laughs> um, I would say my foray into them it, it was two pronged. Um, you know, obviously, like you said, had heard money and another brick in the wall part two, and hey, you, I think a good bit on like classic rock radio. And when I was a junior in high school, my buddy Michael was two years older than me, and so he'd gone off to college, and he came back, and he was like, "Man, you got to listen to this." And it was um, Delicate Sound of Thunder, mm-hmm. the live album from the 87 tour. And he put in Comfortably Numb. And, like, my life changed, <laughs> you know. And But the thing was, I didn't go back at that point and buy, like, all of their albums because, to me, that live version of Comfortably Numb sounded so good, the studio version seemed kind of flat to me. Yeah. So I had that. And I listened to it a lot. And I was a freshman in college in 94, and Pulse came out. And I bought it with the blinking light, you know, and I just wore it out. But it seemed like I was the only one of my friends that was, you know, really, you know, into it. And so I guess my senior year, uh, my buddy Shannon came down to my room one day or something, and, and we got to talking, and he was like, I've really been getting into Pink Floyd lately. And I was like, oh, have you heard Pulse? And more importantly, have you seen Pulse? And he was like, no. And I played it for him. And um, for I would say for a solid year, it was three or four of us that lived, that was three of us that lived together, and then a couple of our buddies. That's all we did was listen to Pink Floyd. And, you know, this was in the days before everybody had a surround sound system or whatever. So I had a stereo. And then he found a way to hook his stereo speakers into it. And so we had this makeshift surround sound where it's like <laughs> five or six speakers. And he was able to perfectly synchronize the CD with the VHS. Now, it's not exactly the same all the way through. You have to, because there's some songs that, yeah. are, that aren't, aren't on it. And, man, we listened to it just and watched it all the time. <laughs> and I was thinking about today, it was funny. We got to a point, one point, we were like, We'd go to these parties and we're like, what if we get there and they don't have Pink Floyd? <laughs> so he would get like a, a Kroger um, plastic bag and put five or six Pink Floyd CDs in there, wrap them around his belt, and we would go to these parties. 
And one night we went to this party. Of course, you know, it went into the wee hours of the morning. We get up the next morning. He can't find, he can't find the Pink Floyd CDs. Well, at this point, you know, you're a broke college kid. Yeah, right. So we're out there the next day looking through the yard trying to find these uh, Pink Floyd CDs. But just got completely immersed into it then. Went back, started buying the old albums. Went and saw Roger Waters in... 2000 in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Actually, part of that live album was recorded at the show yeah, the that we were at. And then I find myself, like, I'll go stretches where I don't listen to Pink Floyd. But when I do listen to Pink Floyd, that's all I listen to. And so, mm-hmm. yep. and, and I would, I, especially that four album run of Dark Side through The Wall, those I never like single like a song out. I listen to it all the way through. Yes. And you can't say that for a, a lot of bands to have four straight albums that there's not a skippable, skippable song on it. Yep. Um, you know, and you could somewhat make the case maybe for metal, but it does have Seamus on there. Seamus is pretty rough. I can appreciate the progressive element of it and them trying to do something different, but they were still sort of in their, like they had lost their singer in 1968. Sid Barrett was their main songwriter. Right. You know they were hurting to kick him out. Right. <laughs> and so and so for for that period of time between 68 and 71, they were leaning on their strengths and just doing kind of atmospheric, you know, musical background stuff. Very avant-garde. Some, yeah. And so yeah, I get it. You're you're a young kid. You haven't really uh, uh, or a relatively young adult. You got a dog around. It happens to to howl when you play a harmonica. Sure, right. play it right. But at the same time, you know, I, I kind of look at that song like I do at the end of 2112 by Rush. Like, they, Getty Lee breaks a string and then makes it a song. And he keeps hitting he keeps hitting it and retuning his guitar while the string is broken. And so it just keeps unwinding. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, come on, are we really paying for this, you know? <laughs> I get, I can appreciate the avant-garde nature of it. But at the same time, give me an album. Right. So I think before we set in on Dark Side of the Moon... Um, we um, we need to really kind of get into what led up to Dark Side of the Moon. Mm-hmm. So, I, have you read the book Saucer Full of Secrets? Um, that was the only that's the main Floyd book that I've read. I've I've got the one by Nick Mason uh, that's got the uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. I've got that one. I've got Comfortably Numb by Mark Blake, and I don't think I've read Saucer Full of Secrets though. Uh-uh. That's the one that 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 I really dug into when we started when I started getting into Floyd, but. So they, they originally, you know, it was Sid Barrett, Roger Waters, Nick Mason, Rick Wright. There was no David Gilmore. Um, he was kind of on the periphery, I think, in like art school, and they just kind of knew him a little bit. And wasn't he, wasn't he going to be a model? He did something? some modeling stuff. He's a, he's a pretty boy, and he's got good cheekbones and that sort of right. thing. Um, but yeah, so they were all in architecture school together. Um, and and so uh, he was just kind of around. I think he was a couple of years younger than they were, mm-hmm. and they knew about him. But it wasn't. Uh, I mean, he wasn't in the band because he didn't need to be until, right until Sid needed to be out. Yeah. So the Piper at the Gates of Dawn was their first album, and if you mm-hmm. listen to it and listen to Dark Side of Moon, you go, "This isn't the same band." Uh, right. Very. It was you know half Beach Boys, half psychedelic, half just. <laughs> you know, completely tripped out on acid uh, music, you know, was it have like Matilda Mother, Lucifer Sam, Bike. Apples and Oranges, I think was on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's the one, I forget, um, Take Up Thy Stethoscope and Walk. And Walk, yeah. That may be my favorite album, t- I mean, song title <laughs> of all time. And yeah. um, anyway, so that album was recorded basically at the same time as the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's. Right. In the same studio. 
there are a lot of people and there's a lot of evidence to show that the Beatles were listening to what was going on down the hallway. Have you have you read that? <laughs> I've heard that. Yes, absolutely. And uh, are you a Beatles fan? I'm a casual Beatles fan. It's hard not to be. I mean, to to have, if nothing else, they were prolific. You know, I mean, they produced a ton of really catchy and a lot of cases really good songs. But I was also, I was a Sgt. Pepper's Beatle fan. I was a White Album Beatle fan. I was not a Hold Your Hand Beatle fan. So you liked it once the drugs came in. I, I liked it exactly when the drugs came in. That's when I picked up on it for sure. So Piper, like we said, you know, there's, it's just it's pretty short, concise songs um, that uh, sound very psychedelic and the lyrics at times just seem almost juvenile. You know, mm-hmm. I've got a bike. You, you can, can ride, ride it, it if you like. like. It's got a basket of You know, but that was when I was really getting into Pink Floyd and I went back and bought Piper of the Gates of Dawn. I never heard any of the songs off of it because obviously, don't, other than Astronomy to Mine, they don't play anything. No, they really don't. Uh-huh. And so, uh, which is an instrumental. So when I put it in, I remember being like, have they got this wrong? Is this, <laughs> you know, is this some like, you know, tripped out Beach Boys music or whatever? But what what are your thoughts on that that time frame? <sighs> I mean, I'm, when, when, when I say I'm a big Pink Floyd fan or a huge Pink Floyd fan or however I introduce myself to people, um, what I really mean is 71 on. I, I was not a big fan of Sid Barrett era other than when like David Gilmore and his acoustic show in the uh, Robert Wyatt's Meltdown 2002 or so, or maybe 2000. Uh, he did a couple of acoustic shows, and he did Terrapin, he did Dark Globe, and a few Sid Barrett songs. I love it when David did Sid Barrett stuff. but And I can fully appreciate where Pink Floyd was at the time, but I'm just not a fan of the first few albums. They would have not become a household name had he stayed with them. No. Um, but it was hits over there. Right. Like Arnold Lane was a huge hit over right. there. And he wrote it about stealing women's undergarments from a clothesline. Right. Like, I mean, I just, I get it. I can appreciate, because, you know, if you think about what we're rolling off of as a nation or as a world, it's Elvis Presley, you know, and and, um, and the Beatles, the early Beatles. Mm-hmm. So that, yes, it was kind of pushing the, the edge a little bit, but it was pushing the edge in Europe and not in California, which is where a lot of the right. of that feel was coming from, right. you know. And they were famous for playing these kind of like all night psychedelic sessions you yeah. know at these places in london and you can go online and see some of the you know kind of grainy footage i mean it just you know it's just mushrooms and acid yep. type stuff <laughs> um and so sid barrett just indulges way too much and he probably he probably i don't know you te- we're both medical people uh your take on this i, I kind of feel like he was probably already predestined to have mental issues and the acid probably just it just made it happen poured, quicker. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like early onset Alzheimer's, man. It just sped it up twenty or thirty years. Yeah, I mean, and I've you know I've, I've been around people who've done that sort of stuff, and it's hard to say because I've also been around people who've done it and, and been fine on the mm-hmm. other end of it. You know, they can just experience it for for what it is. Um, and so, but if you've if you've ever I don't know if uh, we won't talk about this, but I mean, if you've ever talked to anybody who's done psychedelics, what they talk about is that it really opens up your mind's eye, like it legitimately just allows more information to flow through. Mm-hmm. And depending on what stage that you're in, you may or may not can deal with that. So when people have bad trips, it's because they're taking in all this information and they're trying to process it at the same time. And the key is is to take in all the information, but do not try to process. Just enjoy the moment right. and then think about it later. Right. Well, if you do that enough times over and over again, you get a little bit too close to reality. Um, that 
that may make even a normal person go insane. Right. You know, if you if you've if you've kind of thought about life in that kind of way. You know, our brain, our consciousness puts up a lot of barriers to protect ourselves and psychedelics take down those barriers. And so given that, maybe anybody could if you did it enough. It's hard right. to say, you know, but but I agree with you. He may have been predestined and and uh and it just it just kind of ex- accelerated it and So basically they record Piper the Gates of Dawn, his behavior becomes so erratic that he'll go on stage and like he'll just play the same chord over and over again. And so they asked their buddy David Gilmore to help him out and it's and it's also full of secrets. It basically said uh, you know, they played a number of shows as a five piece mm-hmm. and then one day like they couldn't find Sid and they just went to the show and I think it was Nick Mason said we just quit looking for him. Yeah, so one day they actually were going to the show and they had the conscious choice to go pick him up and the whole band said, we just don't need to go pick him up. And that was it. And that was it. And that's the last real, I think the last real contact. I think I've read that Roger went to see him a couple of years later, but then uh, the only other contact I know of is when he stumbled in the studio during Wish You Were Here. Wish You Were Here. And we'll cover that on another episode. So Saucer Full of Secrets, to me, is more of a... Uh, whereas the songs on Piper the Gates of Dawn were concise but kind of trippy, Salsa Full of Secrets, the songs are a little bit longer, mm-hmm. uh, a little more experimental, a little more avant-garde. Um, I know a lot of people are real big fans of that album. I'm like you. I think it has a few moments. Yeah. But but that's um, that's it. But, you know, the musicality definitely increased with uh, Young Mr. Gilmore uh, on guitar. So my, my, my facts... On this time frame, we're probably going to be a little foggy, so you steer me in the right direction. After that, that they did their first soundtrack, wasn't it? The Zabriskie Point? Yes. Okay, so they, they do that. Well, they also did mo- uh, music for the movie More. Right. I don't know which one came first. I will say that. I'll have to look it up, to be honest with you. And, and then, then there was Uma Guma, right? Yes, which was a part live, part studio album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the... Was it like... Isn't If the shortest song title of all time? And then they have the longest on there. Was it Several Small Creatures, creatures in a with a pit pit grooving in a cave yeah. or something like <laughs> yeah. that? But anyway, I'm not a fan of that of that part of no, the band. No, uh-uh. I have the vinyl just because it, there's a, I have the collectible version of the vinyl. Mm-hmm. That was one of those, and I forget the name of it, but it's where it's a picture within a picture within a picture, and it keeps going forever. In one of them, they have uh, there was a movie or something called Gigi, and so they've got that in the image, and then apparently they didn't have rights to that, so they took it out. And so as a gift from a friend, I got the Gigi version just as a collectible sort of thing. So I've got it. I don't think I've ever listened to it though. It's, I just I just like to have it because I like Pink Floyd. You know? Yeah, it's just noise. Yeah, um, and I, I love like you'll go in some of these Pink Floyd sound uh, forums, and people are like, oh, I quit listening after Uma Guma. They couldn't top Uma Guma. And I'm like, what? You hear the same crap with Metallica fans. I got into Metallica because of the Black Album. One was on the radio and one was, uh, you know, MTV. But I got into them really seriously because of Black Album. If people were just, I mean, I'm talking a year or two older than me. The thrash metal people, they do the same crap. I'm like, and I'm I'm with Bob Rock on this. I'm like, come on, can we not like sing a melody and right. not have Anthrax make fun of us? You know, right, right. <laughs> like, can we just produce an album well instead of turning the bass down? So they, they go through that experimental um, point and they make Adam Hart Mother, which is experimental still, but just was it like five songs or mm-hmm. something like that. And one of them's like, what, 20 something minutes? Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast, yeah. yeah. So they're, they're kind of all over the place. And the, the, to me, the lyrics are pretty 
borderline cheesy. Um, yeah, they were pretty bad on a lot of it. Um, there, the the musicality is just not there. I mean, it's just uh, you know they're just lost. To me, they're lost. And what, what what are your thoughts on? Absolutely, they they just. I mean, to me, they were still trying to find themselves. This was a point in the music industry where a label would pick you up and actually foster you and like act, grow mm-hmm. you into somebody. Whereas nowadays, <coughs> like you've got to come straight off American Idol and sell a million records, or right. you're not going to get fostered like that. I mean, you've even heard Kiss say things like that. Like that's what helped Kiss as a band was the fact that. Um, whoever it was picked them up. Crystal or Chrysalis may have been later. Casablanca is it Casablanca? Right. Yeah. So whoever picked them up, I actually took them and said, like, we we expect this to take three albums for it to really hit, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what a band really needs to right. foster and nurture. And so, um, to me, had they not had that mentality then, Pink Floyd may not have existed. Like they know? wouldn't have made it today. So yeah, they would they would have you know been one of these bands that was primarily like a festival band that you see get like a five o'clock spot that you know. Sounds kind of good, but nobody's really buying their their albums. Oh yeah, and I've got I've got bootlegs of those shows when they were the five o'clock festival band that was just in an open field right. and hippies were dancing, right? Right. So um, after Adam Hart Mother, that is obscured by clouds is next, right? I think it was metal. I thought it was it's metal because see metal is when they found their voice in echoes. And then you'd think the next natural progression would be Dark Side of the Moon because that's really where they started sounding like Pink Floyd. I don't know the history of it. I don't know if they had enough stuff in like in the archives or whatever. Um, but uh, Obscured by Clouds was really another album, but they started being a lot less psychedelic and a lot more, it, despite the fact they were progressive rock, um, to the extent that that was even a term then, they had structured songs. It wasn't so much noodling anymore. So that was kind of a weird bridge album that had a couple of good songs. Free Four was one of them. Um, that was, but none of them really made it, as far as I'm aware, big. Uh, but it was an re- interesting transition between the song Echoes and then Dark Side. You could take out Obscured by Clouds and probably... Well, you could probably, as far as I'm, my money goes, you could just take it out completely. But I mean, you could take it out of the repertoire and see how the band went from Echoes to Dark Side. Well, and, and with with Obscured by Clouds, they were almost flirting with what we refer to now as classic rock on some of the songs. A little bit, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's go back to metal then, because I thought metal came after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think metal is where they really woke up. Yes. Um, you yeah, Saint Tropez uh, or Saint Tropez was one that was a good, nice, structured song. Had the little bit of the ethereal sound to it. Same thing with If Seamus could just fall off the face of the earth. Um, and then what was the first one there? Uh, one of these days. Face. Yeah, yeah. The only uh, the only lead vocals by Nick Mason. Right, that's right. Um, and one is, of the only song credits for him. He's got one on Dark Side that will. He does, about. yeah. And he, you know, they threw the the one on Dark Side. They just threw him a bone so he could get some publishing credits. That's what they say. He says he came up with the orchestra, like the arrangement and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a mixed, you know. Mixed I guess bag. some of that. I guess some of that you lose to history, but. So metal is where. They put together, I think, their first listenable epic with yes, Echoes. Absolutely. And uh, you and I talked about Echoes on our the last time you were on my podcast. And I told you we used to judge plane rides behind me. Echoes <laughs> you could listen to. You know, it's, was it twenty three minutes it's or something? Twenty two or twenty three. Yeah. yeah. And it's that it's that one part in the nineteen minute mark or whatever when. You know, as my buddy Shannon would say, things quit making sense when that <laughs> the when, seagull sounds. Yeah, when that hits. But so that album, they really 
started to put it together and you know two of my favorite pink floyd songs of all time are on that echoes and fearless yeah i forgot uh, about fearless fearless is just has i well we'll get to it later there's one song on dark side i think you could have replaced with fearless and it would have made the album better but fearless is where you, you started having these uh it was just kind of almost like a floating, it, dreamy, it was a little bit of a sing-songy kind of feel to it. Yeah, yeah. So, and then right about this time is when they shot the live at Pompeii, right? Because mm-hmm. it yeah. was while they were recording. Was it while they were recording Dark Side, or they just interspersed that footage of them recording? No, it was close to the time when they were recording it. So seventy-one, seventy-two. All right, your thoughts on that DVD, Pompeii? I love it for the historical aspect, but it's it's kind of hit or miss because you've got Seamus, Seamus, you actually get to see Seamus on there, right? Um, but yeah, it's kind of hit or miss for me. It's it's iconic. It's incredible that there's been no other band prior to that, or really anything prior to that since Vesuvius erupted, and so that's it's just that's amazing to think about that a band could get that kind of access. And we're probably we won't get to talk about this today, but the fact that David Gilmore did it again, right? <laughs> just because he's buddy buddy with the um, what is it, the Italian Parliament or government right. or whatever. And so it was iconic from that standpoint. I'm so happy that we had that as a piece of history. Um, but yeah, Echoes made it. Uh, I love the interspersed of, of them trying to figure out Dark Side and recording that and not knowing what they had their hands on. Right. You know, that's what was amazing about it. Because you could hear little pieces that... It, one, one thing interesting, we'll probably get into this on Dark Side, but one thing that's interesting about Dark Side is they had, they had a, a couple of years to field test it before it became an album. And I'm not sure that that's true prior to that. You know, they, they probably did some... some uh, they pulled some of their live stuff and then they made an album. But in Dark Side, they really had a lot of time to play these songs live. And so if you go back and listen to Bootlegs from 72, you can hear these songs. And if the bootleggers were true to how they named the songs, they would call it like the Traveling Sequence or Scat or something like that. And we'll talk about some of those alternative song names when we get there. But It's kind of like what they did with the songs from Animals. Mm-hmm. They were playing them before. Oh, yeah, Raving and Drooling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which that became that was that sheep or dogs that, that became. I, I can never remember. I'll prepare for that one <laughs> because on that yeah because Kyle is going to come back in the future. The main the, the big four Pink Floyd albums. I'm gonna I'm at some point gonna cover all of them individually and um, I have somebody I think that's gonna do Wish You Were Here and then I'm Kyle will come back to do Animals and, and and if he will hopefully the Wall. God, I'd love to um, do the Wall on the Wall. I'm hoping to have a, a group a round table about three or four oh, that'd people be cool. yeah. um, that, that are, that are really big into it. So uh, yeah, so they record, they record the album and you know, they, they really made the leap of like using synthesizers and multi-track recording and uh, you know, some drum loops and things like that. That were these recording techniques that were not being utilized then. Yeah. And I think one of the greatest compliments you can pay for this album, pay to this album I was listening to it for you got here on my home theater system. If somebody walked in off the street, had never heard that album, and they heard it, they would probably go, this sounds like it was recorded last week. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it truly sounds timeless. And it's 45 years old. And you can hear things that are 45 years old that that sound like they're with, I mean, within that time period. Right. And it's like even the recording techniques translate right. over. That's what's so magical about right. that album. Like if you go put the first Aerosmith album on, you go, that was recorded in the mid-70s. Absolutely. You cannot do that with this. Yeah, Alan Parsons, um, he, he gets a couple of credits in this, but Alan Parsons had a lot to do with how successful that album was. I've read that they have a problem 
somewhat with him that they feel like he um, rest his rest of his career was you know kind of touted himself as I was the guy that recorded Dark Side of the Moon, but then he's like, I was the guy that recorded Dark Side of the Moon. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he'll say the same thing. He's like, the problem with the rest of my career was because he even did the Alan Parsons yeah. project and several other things beyond that. But that's what really springboarded him. I and mean, he was a young guy at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he still he, performs. He says the same thing. It's like, yeah, the the problem with my career was is I I hit as hot as high as I could possibly hit the first time I really got a big opportunity. And since then, what do you do after Dark Side? Right. And that's the way the band felt. What do we do after Dark Side? And hopefully, y'all get into this on Wish You Were yeah. Here. They started making an album called Household Objects, which was made with, guess what, household objects. Right. <laughs> you know, and some of the cool parts about this is, like, they, they did get the glass harmonica that I think it was Ben Franklin made, and they, they made that, um, I'm sorry, that, that made the album ultimately for Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Uh, but other things that didn't make it was, like, little rubber band songs and things like that. So it was really still, they were still trying to be avant-garde even though they they. They were sprung into success. And I think on one of the many remastered versions they have, the bonus disc that has some of those. The immersion yeah. boxes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, has some of that on there. All right, so let's get into the album. Uh, it was released on March 1st, 1973. It has sold 45 million albums worldwide. It was initially on the charts for 741 straight weeks. Unreal. 14 years. Right. And then back in the 90s, they re... I was reading like... They they restructured the chart uh, how they interpret the charts and it came back on the charts in like ninety eight. Well, for they a while. also but they also that's when it hit CD was in ninety three I think and so they they I don't know if they mastered it for CD I don't remember what it was but that's when it hit CD so it had another little boost just from a format change because right. if you were a vinyl person well you had to be a tape person and if you were a tape person you had to be a and I skipped over eight tracks but I mean you had to you know go from format to format right. and, and even when I think about it. I bought DVDs thinking that this was the this was the future. Yeah. We moved from VHS to DVD, so I'm going to go out and buy Spies Like Us from 1980, whatever. Right. Chevy Chase, and then it was like, well, lo and behold, Blu-ray comes out. And so there's some things, if you look across my collection, Cool Hand Luke is one of my favorite movies of all time. I've got it on VHS, on DVD, and on Blu-ray. I can't say that about my whole collection. I totally get why somebody would rebuy dark side right. and keep that in their collection and i've even bought it on the one in front of me which is the 30th anniversary right. reissue on the sacd which really didn't become a format that got readily adopted which i love that reworked album cover to, to take i mean i'm telling you every time you touch dark side as an artist as an engineer you're risking your career right because you were taking one of the most iconic album covers of all time and trying to redo it and by them redoing it with the stained glass that i mean just looks great yeah, you know, and that was the out the the group Hypnosis, mm-hmm. um, Storm Thornton. Yeah, yep. did um, that album, and uh, on, we had a whole episode on album covers, and I just went over like some of the al- just some of the albums that they had done, and basically from like the seventies and eighties, if you thought of it as a classic album cover, they it's a good chance they had a had a hand. And in what's it. amazing is he went to school with them. They were just friends. Right. It's not like they came out and then hired him because he was a big shot. They were friends with the guy. Right. And arguably springboarded his success to work with like Led Zeppelin Houses of the Holy right. and then like much later the Cranberries and things like Did that. Did a bunch of scorp those cool Scorpions covers from oh, yeah. the late seventies. Sticky you fingers know. or whatever yeah. it's called. And then yeah. some of those that I'm surprised they didn't go to jail for. There was a couple of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um you know, that album cover is just so 
Uh, all right, I'm trying not to use the word iconic on here because I'm in this like forum oh, God, on, uh, yeah. <laughs> on a podcasting forum where like people say like iconic is used too much. So I'm trying to. It's well, a defi- but it came from this album. <laughs> yeah, it's a definitive album of the era. Right, we'll say that. So, like, my wife's not a music fan. I can show her that, and she goes, "That's Dark Side of the Moon." Oh yeah, it it transcends music lovers. Yes. Um, how many T-shirts have you seen? You know, with it. How many? I'm, I'm embarrassingly wearing one right now that I got from Walmart. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, how many bumper stickers have you seen? Um, you know, it's just, it's just, and it's so simple. Yep. It is so simple. It's just the prism. You know, that's a characteristic of their music. Their music is so simple, even though it's deep. If you actually get it down to the chord structures, there's some basic box blues scales that are being used. Right. It's just the way that they they used them. And I don't think we can comprehend anymore something being on the charts 741 weeks. If you look now, somebody will have the number one song the first week, and they'll have a 60 70% drop-off mm-hmm. the next week. Yep. And this bad boy had staying power, and it really brought them to the masses. They probably weren't, you know, I, I would I would say before this, they could probably come to America and do five 600 people maybe in, like, New York or L.A., mm-hmm. but they were definitely not the household name. So... As we get into it, initially, we're going to get down into, like, the nuts and bolts of this thing with different songs and stuff. But, like, what's your what's your overall impression of the album, just generally speaking? Wow. I mean, so how can I say this without saying iconic? I mean, it is, front to back, it is, the to me, the perfect musical statement. It's deep. It has um, incredible lyrics. And at the same time, it's, it, sometimes it has very simple lyrics that are still moving and the music just carries it through. It was avant-garde enough that it didn't sound like a dog singing into a microphone. It had enough song structure, but still not poppy. Their most poppy song was Money, you know? And yes, it is poppy, but they still incorporated samples and things into it that, it you know, and there's a, there's a lot of firsts that I'm sure we'll get into uh, with, with when we get deeper into the discussion. You know, Dark Side, they didn't do, they weren't the first people to do a lot of things. There were songs before, I mean, I'm sorry, there was an album before this that had samples. So one example that I've got is Last Kiss by Wayne Cocker, 1961. Uh, Pearl Jam covered it in the early 2000s or so. At the very beginning of the song, it sounds like a guy crashing a car. And what he's talking about is, where, where can my baby be? Or maybe it's the girl's point of view. But anyway, where, where can my baby be? The Lord took him away from me. So it's not that samples hadn't been used, but samples were infused throughout this, you know. And so Dark Side doesn't contain a lot of firsts. It's not the first concept album, but I would argue it was the first one that really made it big. Because you you had the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, uh, Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, Who's uh, Tommy. And Quadrophenia. Yeah, exactly. But And they were big, but this was stratospheric. You know, not everybody can name songs off of Quadrophenia or Tommy. They can name individual Who songs, but they can't name uh, what that was from. Dark Side's just totally different. And some of the, you know, like the songs on Tommy and Quadrophenia stand alone aren't that good because it's, they're, they pertain to the storyline. Exactly. As, you know, as much. I was a smart aleck one time, and somebody goes, what's your favorite song off Dark Side of the Moon? And I go the song and they're like what do you mean and i'm like it's just one song right <laughs> it's, it's one just, 43 minute song yeah it's just 43 minute song and they just kind of look perplexed and i was like they're not getting the joke but <laughs> you know to me they were the first ones to do that and make it 
work the way they did. I, I'm not a Beatles fan at all. I think they're. I think them and the Eagles are, are so overrated. Mm-hmm. I understand they were the first, and so you always, you know, it's like Mick Jagger. If if somebody came out and danced like Mick Jagger now, you would be like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but he gets credit because he was the first. Yeah. And so I respect the fact that you have to give them that. Nobody was doing what the Beatles were doing. With that being said, you know, I'm I'm not a fan of Sgt. Pepper's, and I know I'm going to get hate mail, maybe some death threats, and have to move or something. <laughs> but th- this album, it just it, they made it to me. They made it work flawlessly. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, it, it it was experimental, but at the same time, it was conventional, if that makes any sense, with the lyrics. You know, and they I was reading, they made a conscious decision. They go, we're going to stop with all of these, like, broad, abstract lyrics, and we're going to focus more on, on being direct. And they accomplished that. Mm-hmm. And you, you got to wonder how much tinkering they did before this came out. Because, you know, if you watch Live at Pompeii, some of the songs don't sound like they did uh, eventually on the album. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they were just kids in a candy store with all of this equipment and had been given this um, freedom. That said, I think there's you know five or six perfect albums that have ever been made, and this is one. And like I said, I do not listen to it. I can't tell you the last time I was like, oh, I'm just going to listen to any color you like. It's the right. whole It's the whole, It's the the whole. whole right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm the same thing with animals. If I listen to animals, and to some extent, the wall, if I have the time. Wish you were here. I skip over Welcome to the Machine. Sorry if you know people out there are huge fans of that. I'm just not a big fan of that. Yeah. But I would say even for casual music fans, they're going to say this is an album that I can listen to all the way through. And just, you know, it just took them to heights that they never thought. I mean, if you... Piper at the Gates of Dawn, that, that they were never going to make a living off that, you know? And this one just, they just exploded after this and became, you know, one of the biggest bands of all time. And I still think, even though Rick Wright is dead, if Waters and Gilmore would get off their rear ends, and I, I think they could make the guns and the cash that the Guns and Roses are making, I think they could make it look like pocket change uh, i mean the rumor was in the early 2000s or so they were being offered a quarter of a billion dollars to get back together and they each looked at their bank accounts and apparently said no you know so the promoter came together and said listen here's 250 million dollars just bury the hatchet and go out and tour no all right as a sidebar right you know i've never discussed this are you in camp waters or camp gilmore oh my gosh i uh... I don't even know if I can tell you, man. I mean, to me, Waters and Gilmore were a perfect songwriting team for what they brought to the table. If you listen to Roger Waters' solo albums, categorically, I do not like them as an album. But you go see him live, the the songs come to life, you know? Same thing with this most recent album, Is This the Life We Really Want?, when I listened to it, I was like, ooh, what happened? Like, did he not, his handlers didn't do well, right? And then I went to go see Us and Them tour live four times and loved it. Loved the album. I mean, I loved the songs. And then I went back and listened to the album. I was like, okay, I see where he was going. So he's one of those those artists that does not, he does not capture himself well on an album, but he knows how to produce it. He knows how to do the spectacle. It's like widespread panic. 
Yeah, that's true. They've had a couple that they've captured. To me, Dirty Side Down, they they got it figured yeah. out on that one. Jimmy Herring's song, I mean, not song, but I mean, his guitar song on that one, it was a great album. I think that Until but, the Medicine Takes are the two. Or yeah, they? absolutely. And I like the first one, just, I mean, uh, I guess it was just called Widespread Panic or Mom's yeah. Kitchen Sp- or whatever. Space, Space Wrangler. Oh, I'm sorry, the second one. Yeah. The one that had uh, <coughs> C. Brown and um, Mercy. Yeah. The, the rock. The white one, yeah. The white one, yeah. I yeah, think the, it was called Mom's Kitchen. Uh, but anyway, but um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I love, if I'm just going to listen, I can't I can't decide. I really don't know. Um, Roger Waters definitely brought the lyrical content, you know. I mean, you can tell on Delicate Sound, I mean, I'm not doing um Momentary lapse, sure of lapse of reason. Oh, the lyrics are terrible. Lyrics are terrible. I mean, Polly Sampson wrote it. He was dating, or what? Well, yeah. No, he wasn't doing... He wasn't dating her at the time, I th- was he? Well, I thought she could. I thought she definitely did on um, on Del- Division uh, Bell. Division Bell. Uh, Bob Ezrin, I think, did a little bit on that. But anyway, I don't. I'm not sure. But anyway, it just wasn't quite there. Sorrow was probably the best lyrical effort that it was. And David Gilmour actually says, "Yeah, that was probably the best lyrical effort I could have put in." Like that. Oh, that see, I think on the Turning Away is just. I love oh, that one. Man. That was great. If 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 that one didn't make the hair stand up on your arm, oh god, yeah, absolutely, and I love the picture that goes along with that. In that All right, moment, so you were saying you can't say you're in either camp. I, I, you know, I hate to just be on the fence about this, but there's so much I love about both. Um, if I just had to pick one person to listen to all day long. David Gilmore's got the voice. He was the guitar, and as long as he's playing Rogers' lyrics and Rogers, you know, like as long as he's playing Rogers' songs, I think I'd rather listen to David Gilmore. But Roger Waters was the creative genius behind it all. You know, I think when I first got into Pink Floyd, you know, so hard in the '90s, I was 100% count Gilmore. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, same. you know, yes. here Rogers, the one that's suing the band. He's the one out going out. To the press saying, you know, their their new stuff is crap, and you know they're nothing. He's pissy. They're nothing <laughs> He's been without pissy me. His whole life. And then I feel like they did. They, you know, he legitimately tried to bury the hatchet with the live eight thing. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like Gilmore's the one that's hung up on them not doing anything. Yeah. And so I'm to the. I'm going to come down on whosoever side is most likely to get them together. But you know, now you hear Gilmore interviews, and you're like, he's clearly the reason they're not back together, at least for a few shows. Right. You know, and I think you hit the nail on the head. They have to have each other. Yes. Um, he's done what four solo albums. <coughs> yeah. And you know, the first one, um, oh gosh, Present. it had a song on it that I love, and I'm going blank on the name. Um, that I really liked, and then I liked. A couple of songs on About Face. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, you're talking about Gilmore. And then um, David Gilmore is just David Gilmore. Yeah, <clears throat> but when they're apart, it's not the same. No, Gilmore struggles with lyrics. Struggles. Roger Waters, in my opinion, struggles with the music aspect. That's why of he it. hired Eric Clapton to go out on tour with him for Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Right. Because he needed a guitarist. Right. And who else to go? You and know? if you you know, I saw him. When I saw him in 2000 or 2001, I can't remember. You know, you had Dole Bramhall II, mm-hmm. who's a, an amazing player. You had Snowy White, you know, who was in Thin Lizzy and, and among other On bands. On the original Wall lineup. Yeah. And, you know, he always surrounds himself with great musicians. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I guess you'd say now I'm in Kent Waters. 
Uh, if you, I'm in Camp Waters because he's giving me what I want. Right. For that reason alone. Right. You know, like if I'm just listening in my room, I have trouble. But I mean, I'm I'm giving Roger every time Roger Waters goes out, I give him my money. Right. Because <laughs> he's producing stuff for me. And I mean, just if if you just said. The wall versus everything else, and what I mean is the wall when he re- went out and redid it in 2010 or so. Waters all day long, masterpiece, phenomenal, most job. amazing thing I've ever seen. Abs- hands down, most amazing thing. So, given that, I think I'm Camp Waters, but it's just by a smidgen, and it's because David Gilmore's not coming out and doing stuff for me. You know, right? <laughs> I mean, I went to go see David Gilmore. I've seen Roger Waters ten plus times. I've seen David Gilmore one time in Chicago with the United Center for the last uh, tour on Round right. That Lock Tour. And it was a phenomenal show, but it wasn't like a spectacle. It was just right. a f- great rock show. Right. So they record this album. And like I said, it's released in March of 1973. And like I said, it sold 45 million albums. We went over the where it was recorded, uh, album cover. Um, and the initial idea was to that they were going to write songs about things that make people go insane. And... They they go around the recording studio and they're having different people. They're just handing different people microphones, like talking to this, you know. And and I think you you probably more aware than me. There's some recordings of Paul McCartney out there, isn't it? Him, yeah. Him. So Wings Wings was recording. So this is kind of like um, this was. I guess this was near the break. I don't know when the Beatles officially broke up. Like sixty nine or seventy. Okay, so this was post. Yeah. This was Wings then. So yeah. Paul Linda McCartney. And so they were recording next door in Abbey Road Studios. And so uh, Roger put together these index cards and wrote questions on them. So when was the last time you were violent? What's your favorite color? And he went around with a microphone and and asked asked people these questions. And so they got the doorman, Irish doorman, who's he's the guy who says uh, basically like who's afraid of dying? Like what what does it matter anyway? Take me when. I forget what the exact lines were, but anyway. So they interviewed multiple people. I don't know if Paul and Linda made the. I don't know if they actually made the album, but they definitely so. got interviewed for yeah. that. Yeah. So um, that that the songs, as you know, if you listen to the album and if you listen to this podcast, I guarantee you've listened to the album. They just run together. Yes. And they they segue seamlessly, um, and so each song is about something kind of different. Um, uh, you know that that in their opinion made people go insane, and so the opening song is "Speak to Me," which uh, we talked about earlier. Uh, basically consists of sound effects and um, uh, you know spoke clips of spoken spoken word uh, segments and Nick Mason got some writing credits yeah on that one so let's let's dive into that one what what are your thoughts on that as an opener so I mean you know to be uh, to credit Pink Floyd with having the first popular concept album I, I give them that credit you know it goes all the way back to Woody Guthrie's Dust Bowl Ballads in 1940 is what a lot of people credit as the first concept because they had a lot of songs around the same topic. And then from there, again, I've already mentioned a few of these, but Beach Boys Pet Sounds. That was one that David Gilmore actually credited. I mean, he said, like, when he said, who's your influence? It was like Beach Boys Pet Sounds, the harmonies. Mm-hmm. And you can hear that. The first time you really hear that show up strongly in Pink Floyd is on Time, which is the fourth song in which we'll get to. But for this to be a concept album... Um, you know, they actually pulled from what later became really commonplace in progressive music, but was also commonplace in classical music as well. Speak to Me was really a mini overture. So an overture uh, is a piece of a, uh, it's a, it's a kind of an intro song 
that gives you little bitty hints from songs to come. And then it gives them this nice tidy package. That way when you hear it again, you're like, oh, oh, cool. Like I've heard that before. That was really neat. Mm-hmm. Speak to me is that. And it starts off with a heartbeat. And this is what I love about Pink Floyd. You know, nobody else can start an album with a heartbeat. What is the foundation of music? Rhythm, you know, and what is what is common to everybody? A heartbeat. That's what I love about Pink Floyd. It cannot get any more simple than that. Um, and so as a result, why, why for the greatest album, of all, one of the greatest albums of all time, why not start it with a heartbeat, right? And it is with a heartbeat. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's and that's one of the first times they made it like what I would call a circular album. They did it also on the wall as well. Isn't this where we came in? And they come right. right in the middle of, isn't this where we came in? Right. So you start the wall and it says, we came in. <laughs> right. Yeah, so Speak to Me um, kind of sets the table for what is to come, which is the second song, Breathe, which is... Just a fantastic song. Has has that floating kind of ethereal feel to it. Um, David Gilmore's vocals and, and the harmonies of the band to me just really shine through on mm-hmm. that song. Yeah, yeah. Um, one yeah. of the, one of one of the be- one of the best segments of the song "Dark Side of the Moon," uh, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it really said, you know, they, they hit to be as simple and for them to say that they're going to go out and do very structured songs that are still sort of progressive, they hit on a lot of big themes, time passing, greed, death, insanity, and mental illness, mental, mental illness since uh, they just experienced that with Sid. Um, breathe was one of that first one. It starts with, you know, don't be afraid to care. You know, breathe, breathe in the air, don't be afraid to care. Like pursue life to the fullest that it can absolutely let you have. You know, and so to start off an, an album with that is uh, it, it, what's interesting is is that's the it's like they're giving that as the charge to the audience. Don't be afraid to care. But then over the course of the rest of the album, they give you all these things that get in the way to be freaked Time, out about money, yeah. greed, war. <laughs> right. You know, and so I thought that was a really neat way to open that up, and then we'll actually see Breathe come back in a couple of songs. Yeah. So. They played that. That was, I guess, technically the first song they played when they got back together um, at Live Eight. Um, what were your oh, thoughts? I didn't know. That. What were your thoughts on Live Eight? The Live Eight performance. Live Eight was good. I mean, it was. Um, it felt nice for them to have closure, and I think for a lot of people in the band, that was uh, a lot of people, rather that are fans, thought that was a nice way to have some a little bit of closure to the band. You know, to do it for a good cause, which that's the one reason why they said they would come together. And the right. few times they have come together. It was them playing a little baby benefit concert for uh, like, and when I say baby, I mean like a small room yeah, with like, David Gilmore playing. Yeah, it's like a hundred people there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you'll see clips on YouTube of that. But um, and then David playing on top of the wall at the O2 Arena during the Wall concert, the the 2010, 2012 shows. Um, but yeah, that's I, I didn't realize that they had come back together and didn't, and didn't breathe. But that was a nice closer for Pink Floyd fans to say, okay. At least I saw them now, twenty something years later. Right, do that. You know, you know, and they didn't obviously. And Bob Geldof got them back together. Yeah, right. he got them back together, and they obviously didn't tour with the final cut and the wall. They only did like ten or twelve shows mm-hmm. total. So and really bankrupted them. Yeah, really, it was from nineteen seventy eight that anybody had a, outside of like New York, L A, and London had a shot at seeing them. Yeah. Uh, I thought one of the things that was so interesting about that was how much fun Roger Waters looked like he was having. 
He did. Yeah. You know, normally he's kind of, you think of him as being kind of stoic, you know, and he just really was enjoying it. You know, I thought one of the awkward moments was at the end of the performance when he wanted everybody, everybody else everybody was walking to get off together, stage. Yeah. And he's just like, hey, come on. You know, and you can tell <laughs> Gilmore is just kind of like, you know, um, well, that's what, you know, David Gilmore said later. He's like, yeah, like, what if you had to sleep with your ex-wife? You know, like, <laughs> right. that's, the, that's the way that that felt. Yeah, to me, the worst part of the live aid was Roger Waters, how high he pulled his pants up and how, how he, his belt was too big. Oh, he he was just in, bothered me. Yeah, he was in total dad mode. <laughs> that's exactly right. Total dad mode. All right, so we go uh, from Breathe to one of the more interesting parts of this album, um, the sequence On the Run, Yeah. which uh, I've my research is correct, is written about the anxiety of travel. Mm-hmm. And I believe in the, you know, in all the, all the performances I've seen of this song, it, it usually has a, uh, I think the video is like like it's like an airport, isn't it? Like scenes from an airport, like a plane flying and stuff like that. Well, and also, and it kind of cuts between that and I mean, these are, this is what you see on the screen when you go when you see Dark, uh, "Delicate Sound of Thunder" and "Pulse," uh, but it's also somebody in a hospital, right? Bed. Yeah, and so yeah, this was originally called the travel sequence. So if you go back to some of the 1972 live shows and get bootlegs of that, this might be called "On the Run." But at the time, it was actually called the travel sequence, and so that it, so Dark Side was really a series of sequences that that was between the big songs and the big songs being Time and Money. Um, I don't think us and I think us and them was truly called us and them, and um, and even Brain Damage and Eclipse had like longer titles, you know, a, a piece for a sort of lunatics, you know. Um, and so yeah, this was one of the this was one of the two what I would call transition tracks. Uh, on the run was and so in this case they they use what's called an ems synthesizer um and uh or at least that was the the name of the company rather they used a bunch of sound effects and they were really exploring you know pink floyd again maybe they weren't the first to use a quadraphonic sound system live but they certainly became known as the band that used quadraphonic sound right had you had essentially what in quadraphonic meaning at least four speakers, but it sounded like things were coming from all around you. It's a really immersive experience. And so they were really exploring the use of the quadraphonic sound with this and um, using Doppler effects and, and different vocal things that would be interspersed to make it sound like the music was really circling around you, you know? And so it, this one of those, like, do I ever, like, you know, when I type into Spotify or when I pull up my, my music streamer, do I ever go straight to On the Run? No, never, for no good reason ever. But do I ever skip it? No, it is the perfect transition between breathe and time, you know? And so it, it, it just it serves a very, very good purpose. It's one of the songs you see on recording on the live at Pompeii. Water's, you know, twisting the knobs on the synthesizer and, mm-hmm. and trying to get it right. Um, I think it's a perfectly placed song in the, in the sequence and leads us into... Uh, one of the, go ahead. You well, I was going to say before we get to time, this used to just be a guitar piece. They weren't happy with the guitar piece, but they knew they needed something between breathe and time. Otherwise, it would just been breathe time and breathe reprise. And so, it was like this little funky little bit of a guitar thing. And then when they started playing with the synthesizer and made that, when they finally figured that out, they were like, okay, that's much better than what we were doing. And the whole band acknowledges that. What we were doing before was just like this placeholder for right. something we knew needed to be there. And nobody was nobody was putting out music like this at that time. Absolutely not. I mean, really, you think about it, since this was recorded in like 1972, released in 73, 
it would probably be seven to eight more years before that was really used a lot with a lot of the new wave type stuff. Yeah. So they're so far ahead with like their recording techniques. We go into time. Yeah. Well, even some of the questions they were getting at the time on Live in Pompeii. Yeah. Like, they were being kind of criticized by using synthesizers. Like, well, why can't machines just make music? And and the band was like, wait a minute. Th- Somebody has to program it. Yeah, it's got to happen. So, I mean, to, to be that on the forefront, that's the kind of questions they were getting. Like, well, you're not really making that music because you're not, you're not swinging, a, you know, a pick or swinging your hand with a, with a drumstick. And so it's just interesting that that was the thought then, and then like the whole '80s was supported by synthesizers, you right? Know? <laughs> synthesizers and Aquanet. Yeah, ZZ Top can thank synthesizers for <laughs> a lot right. of money. That's right. Time had to be probably one of the most difficult things they've ever recorded. The opening sequence. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, some history behind that. Alan Parsons had been contracted to record that uh, for something else. I don't know what the project was, but it, from from what I read, he went into an antique an antique store and individually recorded those different clocks. And what they did was, when they got in the studio, he didn't use it for whatever he was, had originally recorded it for. So when the band was talking about this, he, he Alan Parsons speaks up and says, uh, I think I've got something y'all might want to... Want, might want to use and the band says yeah let's do that well at the time you know we didn't on the mixers you only had a certain number of tracks and you certainly did not have automation so to record something it was really a performance like you had to move your fingers on the slider and everybody had to be in place and so as nick mason described it like it was a bunch of hand signals you hit go on that machine that has already recorded that antique clock, and you hit that one and that one, and then it just all came together, and they recorded that, not in one take, but what you heard was the take of multiple different tapes of those antique clocks going off at the same time. And then, of course, once they had it recorded, now you've got a sample of it. It provides a great backdrop whenever you see Waters or Gilmore live, or, or Pink Floyd back when they were together, the, the screen. Um, in the background with all the alarm clocks and everything. So obviously this song is about the passage of time. Yep. uh, And uh, how you can become bored with time, you know, and uh, how that can drive you insane. To me, I guess probably maybe the heaviest guitar-oriented song on the album. Uh, That and the tail end of money, the solo was. So this one, kind of more of a traditional rock-sounding song, Gets played a lot still on classic rock radio. Like I said, I've seen Waters several times, even without the wall. And this is a song, you know, that gets played. And obviously, Gilmore plays it. Um, I think one of the better better parts of the album. I think so too. I mean, this was really one that they carried from the breathe concept of seizing the day. You know, not to get too trite with this but actually seizing the best of your time and the way that breathe ends it says ride the biggest wave and head towards an early grave with the idea being the idea being that run rabbit run this is the the way for success is for you to die early but to achieve a lot and make the most of your time exactly and then time kind of ties that in to say well like what happens with your time and so um that to me, that's profound. To to tie all that into a popular sounding song is amazing. Such a such a universal theme that I don't care where you live, you can be in sub-Saharan Africa, you can be in Australia, you can be in the U.S., South America. Everybody deals with that concept, which was what helps make this album so not iconic, but 
<laughs> whatever the other word whatever definitive album definitive, of the era yes that's exactly right it also keeps percussionists in business it gives somebody a job to go on tour with them whenever it's going to be played live yeah absolutely i love the uh the intro the on toms Pulse. yeah yeah i mean um i feel like nick mason like probably has the easiest job because they always have some guy doing all the heavy lifting on you know yeah so total sidebar and fun fact gary wallace was the second percussionist mm-hmm. And when I was in grad school, one of the guys that I was in grad school with, he owned a consulting company. And when he went to Europe, he would get, he had a regular kind of cab driver, or maybe it was even a limo driver that he would have take him around. That was Gary Wallace's father. Wow. Fun fact. So I'm basically, I mean, in terms of six degrees to seven, Kevin Bacon, I'm practically connected to Pink Floyd, you know? <laughs> so through one, two, him, his father, I'm like four degrees away from, from them. Other than the fact that I saw Roger Waters working out in a gym in Louisville, Kentucky. All right, so I'm going to I never touched him. Yeah, <laughs> all right, so I want to talk about that for a second. Yeah. So they say never meet your heroes. Um, and if you listen to our podcast, I met my one of my heroes last week, Chris Robinson. Mm-hmm. And it could not have, I could not have drawn it up and it gone any better. Mm-hmm. which makes me want to do it again right. with some other people. <laughs> you, I remember you texting me. It, you were one of the first people I text when I saw him. You, so you could have had a moment, like a legitimate moment with him, and you passed. Yes. This was when the wall came to Louisville, Kentucky, which for whatever reason was one of the first places. Oh, it was us and them. I thought it was the us and no, them tour. Um, did I go to Louisville for us and them? That was like two summers ago. Because I was going to see him in Atlanta. And like, Oh, maybe so. I thought it was the wall. Well, I went to Louisville to see the wall as well. Okay. But I was definitely in Louisville, Kentucky. Maybe I okay. went there twice. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we were up there for a show. I guess it was us and them. Um, and anyway, so... Uh, and we were walking around kind of a ritzy hotel that had like an art exhibit as a part of the hotel. And so we, you could grab a drink and then just like kind of walk around and tour the art exhibit. And as we got towards the end of it, it was kind of weird because it was like, is that a gym? Like, why is there a gym in this behind this glass thing when you, I was just looking at like modern art. And so I look in there and there's one, uh, one there's one black guy with really long dreads who's wearing like a, uh, a tank top. And he's clearly directing this older guy in what exercises to do. Like he was helping him step on a, up on a box and do these, you know, lat, lat pull downs and all that kind of stuff. And then I looked and I was like, my buddy Phil, I was like, oh my God, that's Roger Waters. And so I turned into a 12 year old girl at that point And I think, okay, what do I do? Cause I was not expecting this. And then Phil was like, I was like, I was like, is that Roger Waters? And he's like, I'm telling you what, this is the ritziest hotel in, in Louisville. And yes, people stay here like that. Like, I mean, people, uh, famous people stay here. I was like, oh my God, what do I do? Like, so, I mean, he's in there, he's sweating down, he's he's doing his thing, right? Do I interrupt? Well, I don't, certainly I don't interrupt him. I can wait on him, though, and Phil's willing to wait, so I can wait. And then I think, you know what? I know exactly where I place the wall in my head. I know exactly where I place Dark Side of the Moon. I know exactly where I place all this. So having known all of that information, plus reading interviews from like Rolling Stone and various, you know, major outlets that have just gone bad because Roger was just pull, like full of piss and vinegar... I thought, you know what? I don't need that to mess up my experience. You know, I don't need to meet the person who wrote all these things because I know I cannot hold the wall with higher regard than I currently do. It could only get worse. I did not want it to get worse. Same thing with Dark Side of the Moon. He, he could could he have been the nicest guy in the world? I could have gotten a picture, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I'm very happy I did not meet him. Because I was concerned that he was going to lessen my experience with those things. Same thing with Axl Rose. If I ever met Axl Rose, I don't think, well, I'm sorry, I don't think I'd ever try to meet him. 
I'm just not sure what I would get with them, and I know exactly where I place Appetite and the uh, Illusion albums. And so I'm not disappointed at all, other than I wish I could have a, a structured experience where I knew he would be nice. Then it would heighten everything I know about him. If but he did, that, if he did the meet and greet, would you would you do it? I don't know. Like I mean, Vince Neil did meet and greets, and from what I've heard from people, it's just like he's just tired and bloated. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So I'm concerned about that too. So I don't know. I'm very. I had a touch. I was very close to him. I could have taken a picture, and then I thought, you know what? No, I'm not. He's working out right now. Who wants right. to be interrupted when they're working right. out? Right. So I just said, forget it. You know. All right. So you didn't meet Roger Waters. I would have. I would have waited out there and just at least said. <laughs> at least said you may have been disappointed. Who knows? At least said, hey, you could be like me. I accidentally bumped into Mark Ford on the street in New Orleans, and I'm like, that's Mark. Like I had like a half second where my in my brain I went, that's Mark Ford, and I go, hey Mark, and he goes, hey, kept on going, <laughs> you know, and so like I had no opportunity to uh, yeah. to do anything. All right, so. Time. We've established that's a great song. We have another, I guess we want to call these maybe transitional songs, these instrumentals maybe. Well, I mean, so I would consider On the Run, which is the last one we covered, and then the next one, Any Color You Like, as tr- true transitions. Great gig, great gig in the Sky is next. Well, oh. I don't know if it's a transition, okay. though. Okay. I could listen to that one by itself, you know? Now, when I first got into Floyd, I was like, I don't get this. I don't understand why this person's yelling. I, the piano sounds pretty, but I don't get it. So I understand how some people could call it a transition. Now that I'm now that I'm as deep as I am into Pink Floyd and I've listened to it enough, I was the same thing, uh, same way about Shine on Your Crazy Diamond. The first time I heard it, first of all, for the first minute, I thought something's wrong with my stereo because right. I can't hear anything. <laughs> but then it slowly swells it's just up. Just the and same note. And, and then and then it's even like, who wants a song that takes five minutes to sing or seven minutes to sing? I was the same way about Greg Gig in the Sky. To me, this is not a transition song anymore, for sure. Okay, and it's not an instrumental because they're vocals on it. Exactly. I think I misspoke then. All right, so when you see Roger Waters live and this is performed, or like when on Pulse when it's performed, to me, it's like the big like it's a the biggest surprise. Like when I saw Guns N' Roses, the biggest surprise to me. You know, they pretty much played everything. The biggest surprise to me was Live and Let Die. I hate the song. I hate the Wings version. I hate the Guns N' Roses version. version. Cannot stand it. Thought the presentation and performance of that live was amazing. Has made me go back and try to maybe appreciate it a little bit more. I still don't, but Mm -hmm. I have that moment. And I feel like this is one of these songs, if you see live... You don't understand the power until you hear it live, until yes. it's just blaring through. You know, Roger always has a great sound system, especially in this Us and Them tour. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. the stuff for like 20 minutes before the show starts with the woman sitting there watching the waves. Oh, yeah, the and you just, and you're like, man, we're at the beach. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't think this is, I don't think this is in any way a, a down song, which I'm like you. When I first got into Pink Floyd, I was like, it's kind of a waste of space. You know, we don't have Gilmore's vocals. You know, there's not like a guitar solo. But you see it live, and then you're like, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's about When dying. it's done right. Yeah. And it's about dying. Mm-hmm. Song about yeah, they, dying. this used to be called the mortality sequence. So to your credit, um, and it also used to be called the religion song, because they were still trying to work out what to do. So they had a, they had a preacher like actually speaking lines from the Bible when you hear mm-hmm. very early versions of this. But, uh, but yeah, it's called the mortality sequence. And so any song they've called a sequence is like, well, yeah, let's get to the next song. So this was the song that bridged time and money. 
but it became a song on its own because Alan Parsons had worked with a, a girl named Claire Torrey, mm-hmm. who I think was 25 at the time, mm-hmm. to come in. She almost didn't come in. She had tickets to see Chuck Berry, and when she got the call, she didn't understand what this was for, and she was like, I've got tickets. I mean, I want right. to go to a concert, right. basically. So she almost checked out on this one, but came into the studio, did a couple of takes of um, of some things that were like really typical of what you do from a backing singer, some oohs and ahs and babies and things like mm-hmm. that. And, and Pink Floyd was like, no. we Think of death. Think of violence and sing that. And so she said it took her a couple of takes, but it finally got her to say, she's like, what if I use my voice? And I was like, I'm an instrument, and I'm an instrument singing a solo. And so that's what came out of this. Yeah, like we said, uh, it, it's, it is a standalone track if you go see like Roger Waters in concert. Yes, absolutely. It's not... It's not well. This was a standalone track before it even hit right. Uh, before it hit Dark Side of the Moon, this was on Zabriskie Point, and there was a part when Michelangelo, Michelangelo Antonelli, I think is his name, or An- Antonio Eli. Anyway, he was the one. It was the director of Zabriskie Point, and this was it, during a sequence of a particular violence on a college campus, and that's why it was called the Mortality the Mortality Sequence. So it was about death and it was about violence, but they wanted to play rather than something that felt. I guess deep and dark. It was like, what if we played something pretty over a very violent sequence? So imagine Kent State, the violence in Kent State, but you were right. listening to a pretty song. Same concept in Zabriskie Point. So it came from then, 1969. And when Floyd got together to do this, they're like, I think we can revive that. We own it. I mean, Rick Rick owns it because he wrote it. So right. We can revive this, and that's when it came back on Dark. So Side. it's something beautiful about something scary. Yeah, exactly. That's. Are you a Wilco fan at all? A little bit. Do you know the song Via Chicago? Mm. Okay. All right. Then I'll. That kind of has some aspects of that into it. All right. Yeah. So we go into what at the time was their hit. And I'm about to make a lot of people mad. <laughs> I despise this song. Yeah. And I don't despise it because it's the hit, because I love Another Brick in the Wall, Part Two. I love Comfortably Numb. You know, Time, the other songs that they had, Learning to Fly, the other singles they released, I all love. I'm not a big fan of the saxophone to begin with. And the time signature yeah. on this Seven, eight. drives me crazy. Now, I will say that when you see it performed live with Roger Waters thumping that bass, mm-hmm. it's good. But this is a song that I could do without. And if I was making the album, I take this out and I put Fearless in. Ah, and I, I was feel like, which one you were talking and about. And I feel like Fearless... Would would go right into the end of Fearless would go right into us and them just fine. Yeah. But I'm gonna let you talk about money because I've I've said my piece and I know people are gonna get upset with me about that, but I just don't like the song. Well, so personally, I would not take it out because you're taking it out of one of the most whatever our word is for iconic definitive album definitive of the era. Album of the era. <laughs> I mean, to me, you cannot touch that. To me, it's sacred ground. You're basically taking the Pope's papal middle away, and and you know you're you're being something. You're doing something of the sacrosanct, right? I, but having said that, probably one of my least favorite Pink Floyd songs. But would I still listen to it? Absolutely. Do I ever go straight to it? Absolutely not. Um, for the most part. But this is one of the few songs, like on Pulse, where they can actually kind of jam at the end. They, very rarely do Pink Floyd go off script. 
I mean, they, they very much have a structured show. And so the two places where they do go off script is this song towards the end when it goes it goes from 7-8 and, and there's Mick, Nick Mason so that, that David Gilmore doesn't have to solo over 7-8 time. You hear that and it gets them back to 4-4 four, four time and then mm-hmm. you hear the solo. Well, then they get a little reggae, kind of a little jazz and blues right. with it towards the end. That's one of the songs they go off on. The second song that they really go off on is Comfortably Numb on the original album. Uh, on the wall, they kind of it just fades out. Like the the solo just fades out, and you you miss the last like three or four minutes of it. And so what to me was cool about them taking delicate sound of thunder and pulse and doing the, the solo on comfortably numb. It's like the part we didn't get to hear. It's my favorite guitar solo of all time. Absolutely, the version on pulse it cannot be replicated. No, it's incredible. And in fact, his favorite David Gilmore's favorite version of that he quotes is his favorite of all time was it is in New Orleans, nineteen ninety four. Wow, and there's there's bootlegs out there, very poorly made bootlegs of that one. But anyway, so I would definitely not take this out the album. However, it's not my favorite because to me it's it's to call Pink Floyd a pop band is is absolutely incorrect. This is their most poppy song, and that bothers me just a little bit. But to create a poppy song and to have samples. I mean, and to have a, like, can you name another pop song that's in 7-8 time? Probably not. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like the, it's Pink Floyd pop, you know? Right. So I can, I'm, a, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. If there's ever any doubt that Pink Floyd's music is, is not blues influenced, this song, this song should tell you differently. If you were to play this on guitar, so in, um, in, in blues music, there's what we call a block, a box blues scale. And if I had a guitar, I could play it for you now. But it, it follows a very basic pattern that almost all blues does. And if you listen to Led Zeppelin, you can you can pick out that pattern mm-hmm. in um, in uh, Jimmy Page's solos. In this song, it literally follows that box blues. I could draw it out for you, and you'd see the box that happens. It's all, it almost makes me mad how simple it is, and the fact that it's so um, definitive, you know. And what it is. So this is one that received a ton of radio airplay. It was their their one single, their number one single, rather, from this album. The second one was the next song, Us and Them, which to me is a more Pink Floyd song to do a, a single of. But if there's ever any question that, that they are not blues-influenced, this should con- this should make you think otherwise because of that basic structure of it. Um, having said that, I just don't like it. I just It's just not my favorite one. The jam at the end is nice. I like it for what it is, but this was probably my first experience with Pink Floyd on the radio, and it's what I would consider a casual fan to like. And I've even got um, people that are near and dear to my heart who, when they first got inter, you know, introduced to Pink Floyd, they said, oh my God, money's incredible. And then when they got deeper in the catalog, they were like, okay, what was I missing? Right. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, I'm sort of with you, but I wouldn't touch anything that's sacrosanct. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it off the album. Well, it makes me mad that... People think this is like that. This is Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. and this is not Pink. This is not what I would. If an alien came down and said, "You know, what's Pink Floyd?" This isn't one of the ten songs I would give them. No, but um, it's this. But it, but if you ask the casual fan, it's right. one of the ten songs they would give them. That's right. what's aggravating. Same thing can happen with the Who, right? It, with Bob O'Reilly or some of right. the like. So if they would the call lines. it Teenage Wasteland. Exactly, oh, it drives me crazy. Yes, my generation. I'm like, oh my god, there's some like Sea and Sand. That's the Who, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it's one of the. It's obviously the song is about the greed of money and the uh, the evils of uh, of money. So let's go into what is my favorite part of the album. Hands down. Us and Them. God, such an amazing Rick song. Rick Wright just kills it 
yes. on this song. The song's about isolation and conflict. Um, and about war. And about war. Just an amazing song that when you... I, I have a pretty decent sound system in my house, a surround sound system. And you put this on, and man, if you sit in the center of the room, you float. Just, this is one of the songs, if somebody's like, what is Pink Floyd? This is the one I go with. Yep. And those version, that version on Pulse is so good. And we haven't talked enough about Rick Wright. Um, and we should have a great gig in the sky, because right, that was sh- his first huge we, we, contribution. Yeah, we, we should have. You know, if you, and if you talk to, um, if you hear interviews, obviously I've never talked to David Gilmore or Roger Waters. If you listen to interviews with them, they both go back to Rick Wright. How important he was to the sound. You know, when he died a couple years ago, both of them basically released a statement saying, you know, he was responsible for so much of the sound and so much of the backing vocals. And, uh, you know, he famously got kicked out of the band during the law, which was just a And was a hired musician. Yeah. And I heard he's one of the actual people that made money off the tour. The yes, because <laughs> he know? didn't have a he didn't have skin in the game. Yeah, and so anyway, um, to me, it's the best part of this album, um, and I, I just absolutely love the song. I have I have anything else to say about it other than I think it's a perfect song almost. This was one of the first. Um, so this was you know I may have messed this up. Oh goodness, I've got to apologize. So this was it's called the violent sequence. This was in Zabriskie Point. So I got a little bit ahead of myself. He did write the other. He did write a great game in the sky earlier. I, I need to go back and correct that. So my, my apologies on that one. This was the piano piece writ, originally written for the film The Zabriskie Point during that violent sequence. Um, it's uh, definitely my favorite song from the album. It deals, deals, deals with the theme of war. There's one line in here that to me you can't write any more concisely. The general sat. The lines on the map move from side to side. I mean, when I hear that song, oh my gosh, like that explains so much about war. That is But war. also so much about politics. You, you've got this person who's controlling all the puppet strings and the lines on the map move from side to side. That's just, that's amazing imagery. Um, this is one of the first songs where they really explore the use of open spaces. So if you hear the song without the echo, it just says, us. Them. And them. I mean, it's such a long pause, it's almost uncomfortable. But without doing that, you wouldn't have had space for that echo that kind of filled it. And so one of my, um, again, somebody who's near and dear to my heart was like, hey, can you play you know, this song by Pink Floyd? And I was like, well, yeah, I can, but it's actually kind of boring to play. Why? Well, because the guitar part, like, for example, of some of Animals, it just is like one little bitty bow. <laughs> and then that's it for like 30 seconds. I was like, well, yes, I technically can play it, but it's boring to play. Right. Wish you were here. That's fun to play. Right. Yeah, that's that's a full guitar song. I can play several, um, I can play pieces of, of um, Greg King the Sound Piano. That's fun to play. Us and Them is categorically not fun to play because it's the whole band that creates the instrument of the song, you know. So, uh, yeah, this is hands down my favorite song. I'm incredibly embarrassed that I, I mixed up Grey Gig in the Sky, which is the, um, which is the mortality sequence with this one, the violence sequence. But this is the one that made the Zabriskie Point film and the one that they had redone. I think the song is also kind of a, a forerunner to Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. You know, you're talking about, like, the, the, how the playing of it's, you know, 
it's not that complicated, you know, and they just yep. let it ring out. Four you know? notes, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of kind of the same thing. Um, well, I'm glad. I think that's interesting because you, you and I did not discuss anything before we did no, this. No, we did not. We were just – so we're both – us think us and them stand out. Yep. Money the least. Yep. Um, that's, that's interesting. Um, now we move on to another transitional song. I guess you want to call it that. This is my favorite of the transitional songs on the album. Yeah. Any color you like. I just feel like Rick Wright just shines on this. And man, this has got <laughs> this got a little it's got a groove to it's it, man. It's funky. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, a funky it, song, it's, yeah. If uh George Porter and the Meters ever want to do a Pink Floyd song, I'm sure this is what uh what oh, they would man, do. I'm telling you what, so just to, to have a tiny sidebar down at the Wine Festival, saw George Porter live and actually uh, made friends with some of the tapers down there. I really want to get into taping. And so I've got the George Porter set from that, but they mm-hmm. uh, the whole weekend they covered a number of Pink Floyd songs. But I'm I'm with you. What all did they? Uh, have a, one of the best Havis cigars I've ever George heard. Porter did that? No, not George Porter. Uh, George Porter. It was I think it was Big Something, Big Something or the Main Squeeze. Those were the two standout bands for me. Which actually we are releasing a Wani podcast next week, and it's really not Wani. It's kind of like how we can bring hippie ideals into our own life. So that's on the Mad Madrigals podcast. And in that, we talked about my two big surprises were a band called Big Something and The Main Squeeze. Both of them, I think both of them covered Pink Floyd, but that was one of the best habit cigars I've ever heard. But George Porter, the reason why I was bringing uh, them up, funky. I mean, like funky meters funky. I mean, it was crazy funky. And so, yeah, this was definitely one of those... Um, a studio technician, this is where the song, do you know where the song title comes from? Mm-mm. So a studio technician used to respond to damn near any question with, oh, oh, any color you like. Like just whatever you want, any color you like. And that was in reference to an apocryphal statement that Henry, um, Henry Ford used to make about the Model T. He's like, oh yeah, it's, it comes in any color you like, as long as you like black. You know, <laughs> and so Roger Waters picked up on that. He's like, yeah, that's like, that's what's great about life. It's just like, there's those choices that aren't really choices. They're presented to you as choices, but in reality, like you have no choice. And there's something to me, that's what makes Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd. They took something that, that's that profound and put it as a song title for a transition track. You know, I love Pink Floyd. Love them for that reason. And like we said, it's a funky track. Uh, and it's very, it's also very kind of dreamy, uh, yeah. you know, with, with the, the way it sounds. So we go for this the, one used to be called the scat section scat. I mean, that's all they had. The, I can that's see the that. only title for it was scat. So we go from that into maybe the, one of their kind of epic closings of an album, mm-hmm. brain damage and eclipse. Let's hit brain damage first. Uh, you almost can't treat them separately. Just like if you hear them on the radio, yeah, they're, they're play playing together. together. Yeah. It's Absolutely. like, um. Uh, we are the champions, and um, uh, we will rock. You. Yeah, and we will yeah. rock you. you yeah, know? or uh, um, eruption, and um, you really got me, yep. Van Halen. It's, obviously, it's about Sid Barrett's mental instability. Yep. Um, the original title of the song was "Lunatic." I love on Pulse the video, the lunatics on the grass, and it's like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and like Saddam Hussein and all of these like world yeah. world leaders. But uh, lyrically, I really love this in Eclipse. So let's go with Brain Damage first. Your, your thoughts on the first part of that suite. Gosh, I mean, so this is the lunatic is on the grass. So ro- where Roger Waters got this from, there was a sign. It's one of those keep off the grass signs. 
you know. And um, it, he saw it at King's College, near King's College in Cambridge. And he just thought that was so funny because, like, in order to read the sign, you actually had to stand on the grass. And me and my buddy... How are you going to eat your meat if you can't get the pudding? That's right. the pudding. And so, like, me and a buddy, um, when we went to this, like, fancy pants country club in the, like, when I was a preteen... We saw a sign that we had to walk on the grass to read, and it was literally keep off the grass. And so we, you know, we, and it was like a $200 fine or something, because it was like a green or something. I don't know. If you weren't playing, you had to have cleats on, that sort of thing. And so when we saw that, we got scared because we're like, oh my God, like you had to get on the grass to read the sign, you know? So yeah, love the opening to that. And what, what, kind of makes this song and it really kind of is a it's a nice little bow tie on the album because this is where you get the song title i'll see you on the dark side of the moon is how the song really raps and when i say raps it still goes into eclipse but um but yeah this is um there's really no dark side of the moon there is yeah it, yeah I, I, that was such a that to me that was the perfect closure of that hearing um I think his name was Jerry. He was the Irish doorman who said that. I think that was right. But. Who was the um, the um, group that we went to see, you, me, and Bo, here in Jackson, performed? Was it Black Tie Symphony? Or yeah, Black, Black Jacket? Tie Symphony. Black Jacket Symphony. Yeah, right, yeah. So if you get a chance, they do... Apparently, they hire all these musicians, and they, note for note, recreate classic albums. Like... They just came through here and did the Eagle an Eagles album. They're mm-hmm. gonna come here and do Journey's Escape in a couple of couple of months. Uh me, Kyle, and our mutual friend Bo went to see Dark Side of the Moon. And I remember getting really freaked out because they come out and they start playing and then the guy's just on the side of the stage, you know, it's completely dark. And all of a sudden, he's talking, and he's British or Irish or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, you know? Yeah. And they did a perfect note-for-note rendition of this album with spoken word. And they even recreate the laughs. Yes. I mean, it was yeah, it was unreal. If unreal. you if you if you uh, took something beforehand, that could make you run for the door when uh, when he started talking, <laughs> man. You know? But uh, brain damage. Uh, Amazing! I love it on Pulse. I think Kyle. At some point, we need to do an entire album on Pulse. I mean, entire podcast. Oh on God! Pulse. I, yeah, I'm a little disappointed that I'm not the wish you were here guy too. But like, I could do. Hey, I, I, I could bring you in. I could do all of these, man. I, know, <laughs> I love it. I know. Um, amazing song, and then the song, the album ends with Eclipse. Yeah, and I don't think it's a per, a perfect a better way you can end this album. I can't think of any other album they've done that is was better ended by than with this one. Right, you know? it ends with the heartbeat. Yep, the same way it began. Life is cyclical. Yep, you know, and it to me this is a nice summary song, and it's one of those that only you know. So the end with the line and everything under the sun is in tune. So you're like, okay, good. There's there's a ray of hope. Then it says, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon. It's like God. Well, now we're back to lunacy again. Right. I mean, you just, to me, after a 43-minute experience, you know, I mean, gosh, that's just such a powerful thing. And then you hear the doorman at Abbey Road Studios say, there is no dark side of the moon. As a matter of fact, it's all dark. Gosh, that is just so, that is such a dark thing to say after this whole album that has taken me so many places. And uh, so the album ends, like you mentioned, the album ends like it started with a heartbeat. But they also do this like kind of laundry list of things, um, and Roger's done this several times. Uh, and if you think about, if you were to just to just start listing off a number of things in an album, you like a just a list of of, of things that were happening. 
that sounds like it could be kind of boring, you know? And he actually does it on uh, dogs, you know, who was trained not to spit in the fan. And he starts listing. He literally just lists off all these things that could happen, right? Same thing with What Shall We Do Now from the Wall, which was only live version. But when he starts singing like, um, you know, uh, go to shrinks, take to drink, treat people as pets, change dog respect. Like he just goes through all these things and it's just a list of things. And you would think, who can pull off a list in a song? He does that on this. In that whole last, if you look at the lyrics of this, um, I've got them right here in front of me. But I mean, if you, if you look at the lyrics of this, when he's going through all those things, he just names off. I mean, he's just literally rattling off stuff. All that you touch, all that you see, all that you taste, all that you feel, all that you love, all that you hate, all you distrust, all you say. I mean, can you think of another band that has successfully pulled off literally a grocery list of things that are epiphanies in life? <laughs> Numerous times. In number. And so he does that again on Picture That from the very last album. He just names off things that kind of suck. And he said, Can you picture, you know, all these things? So to me, and this is really the first time that he's done that, but I can't think of a better closure to a song or to an album rather than Eclipse. The sun is eclipsed by the moon. I can't either. And. The song ends in a heartbeat the same way it started, and they go on. Their lives change. It absolutely changed. Their tax bracket changed. Uh, And, of course, you know, in England, the tax bracket at the time was so high, they probably floated the British government for a while. You know, they didn't have to do exile on Main Street to get out of there. Um, I mean, it changed their life. Yeah. And it it really became a different band because, you know, as as the different band members will say, like we were during Dark Side, we were kind of at our peak because we were all striving for the same thing, fame and fortune and to be the ultimate rock band. But then when you get there, what do you do next? Right. You know, and so that was a that was kind of a tough time for the band, because when you've when you've achieved that success, I don't know what you do after that. The, the fun part is the climb, not the getting there. Right. The getting there, you take a picture and you try to find another mountain to climb, and that's what they tried to do with Wish You Were Here, which I think was an... If you think about sophomore efforts to a phenomenal album, Wish You Were Here is a solid one, you know? This paved the way for the wall in some respects. Yeah. The, the superstardom, the the firecrackers at the show, Roger spitting on... On people, they in never Montreal, would they Montreal never Canada. would have been playing a stadium had it not been for this album. So in some s in in some regards, this was the best of both worlds, it, you know. And it was also the good times and the bad times. They the success eventually darn near drove Roger Waters insane. Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't know what we're talking about, I think it was on the Animals tour. Um, people threw firecrackers up on stage while he was there and he wound up spitting on the audience and he was like, I wish I could just build a wall between me and the audience and I don't have to see them. Yeah. Um, you know, it really, th- th- this success... It was the Animals Tour in Montreal. Yeah, it, this success, it changed them financially. It also changed the inner, the dynamics of the band. Yeah. Uh, you know, going forward, like we said, Wish You Were Here was a great follow-up. The album, to me, is nothing like Dark Side of the Moon. Uh the band, I think, to a to a person says they think "Wish You Were Here" is their best album. Mm-hmm. But uh, I well, like Rick Wright said that. He yeah. said that's the only song, that's the only album he listened to for pleasure was "Wish You Were Here." 
Yeah, I think it's a good album, but I don't think it's as good as Dark Side of the Moon. I don't think it's good as Dark Side. I don't think it's good as Animals. I mean, I love Animals. Animals might be my favorite album. So if you had to, well, you just took the, you answered my question. Maybe not. Ask it. (laughs) Where does this, where does this fall? I mean, between the four iconic albums of the 70s that came from Pink Floyd, Dark Side, Wish You Were Here, Animals, and, and... the wall and if you think about the sequence of that two years apart on each one 73 75 77 79 it's hard to argue with the wall that is a rock opera it wasn't the first one but it was probably near the best one for me does it have some low points absolutely i never go to young lust and listen to it i never listened to the last half of the first album or the first side before it gets to hey you but as a complete piece, one of the most phenomenal things I've ever seen live, ever. Period. Hands Agreed. down. And I saw it four times, and each time I had goosebumps. And the last time I actually, the only time I've ever cried or brought to tears in a concert was when me and Joe saw it, Joe, me and Bo saw it in Nashville. Me and Bo hugged after it. Right. I mean, I like looked at him, I was crying, I hugged him, and it was just like, Oh my God, what was that? <laughs> right. That was amazing, right? So it's hard to beat that emotional experience. I have never had that with Dark Side of the Moon. So I, maybe I'd have the same thing, you know? I did see Dark Side of the Moon live, and it was phenomenal. Uh, and I'm, so I'm talking about Roger Waters 2006 to eight. Mm-hmm. I think is when he was touring that. And so I saw that. It was it was great. But I, just, I wasn't moved to tears. It was just a great album, you know? So, I mean, if I had to rank them in terms of live performance, The Wall is definitely number one. And I don't know how you could beat it. It was just such an immersive experience. Um, probably Dark Side of the Moon second. Wish You Were Here is just an all-around solid album. And so is Animals. But I, to me, both of those are just good on the album and they're really good live. I love Roger Waters current take on it. And whether you like Donald Trump or politics or whatever, it was just a great satire of that whole thing. Live. And, we're getting a, and he wrote it 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. You know, and we're getting amazing. a DVD of that. Did you see that? Oh no. I'm so excited. Yeah. They're going to record it. I think like in the next week or two, I think in Italy, maybe really. Yeah. So, so yeah, I know he's, I mean, every time I see dead skin boy, who is Sean Evans, who's his creative director right now, he's the one that gets credit on the wall. Um, like the, you know, they took that to the, uh, what film festival was the Toronto Film Festival? And so, um, yeah, anytime I see him or Roger posting anything, they're selling out in Europe. And I'm sure they sold out a number of times here as well. But, but yeah, I've got, a, a, again, a, a friend that's um, a person that's very near and dear to my heart. She's going over to Germany to actually see this. Wow. And she, she missed it here, and she's always right. wanted to go to Germany. So she actually is purposefully going to Germany to experience Germany, but also to see Roger Waters play over there, which is, like, unreal. How... Can you name another band that would drive someone to, to like book a trip? Oh yeah, <laughs> you know as, as, that is absolutely unreal. But I am stoked that they are recording that because that was, I mean, other than the wall, probably one of the best live shows I've ever been to. My only complaint with it, it was almost sensory overload. In that, oh yeah, because my our seats were not on the floor; they were probably ten rows up, halfway back. And I found myself watching the screen that was hovering over the floor, um, you know, almost like made a cross with the stage. It did, yeah. The and, second half it did. Yeah, the second half. I found myself watching that, and then I got fixated on the pig that was oh. flying. Oh, and, yeah. And like, it came like five feet above our head. Oh, yeah. You know, and so I feel like I'm going to enjoy watching that 
being presented again because, I mean, it was sensory. To me, it was just, it was so much going on. And yeah. as anything with anything these guys do, the sound was superb. Yep. The visuals were superb. The playing was superb. The opera aspect of it was superb. Yep. Um, as we get ready to close out, any more Dark Side of the Moon thoughts? Gosh, I mean, so this was, if for some people, this would be one of the most important events of their life, not because it was an awesome album, but because it actually helped fund Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's right. So Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, Elton John, Pink Floyd, all put up, the whole budget was like 200 euros. So Pink Floyd put up 20,000 euros. Not not a ton of money. I mean, maybe in the seventies it was obviously more than it is now. But at the same time, like that was they were, they they were Monty Python fans, and they they threw it in. Right. I think it's so cool that they help fund another for some people like iconic movie. You know, even though it was like cheap and you right. know, it was fun and all that. But I mean, and that's just a little fun fact on there. And George Harrison ended up funding some of the later stuff through a, a company that he had created. But um, but yeah, like. Monty Python is huge, and it, it became something special. But yeah, to me, if if there's an, a Desert Island album, this has got to be one of them for me. I could listen to this over and over again. I never get tired of looking at the imagery. I never get tired of hearing the songs. Just this morning or today, I've heard this album three times in a row, basically. I heard it one time to make a couple of notes. I heard it another time in the car on the way over here. And then I actually watched the making of documentary just to have a little tidbit to think about and talk about. Still not tired of it. I could hear it on the way home today, you know. Right. It's a perfect 43 minutes. Absolutely. I mean, you don't get tired of it. I mean, you do not get tired. So, Trans Siberian Orchestra, Paul O'Neill. If you listen to any of their albums, they're all like nearly 80 minutes long, and you get tired of them about 45 minutes in. And I love Trans-Siberian Orchestra and what they did to, to the music at the time, but it's like Paul O'Neill was trying to fill up 80 minutes of a track because that's what a CD can handle. That's a little bit OCD to me. You know, we don't we don't need you to fill up the track to make it valuable to me. We need right. you to fill up time that I'm going to find valuable in that 45 minutes you've got my attention, you know? So um, where does it fall in your ranking of your favorite albums of all time, not just Pink Floyd, just in general? Well, the problem is, is most of my favorite of all time albums are Pink Floyd, but like between... Between Guns N' Roses and Pink Floyd, they probably make up my top five albums of all time. I mean, to call this number one, it's hard not to because it's such a solid, concise piece. And to me, it, there's never a dull moment. Whereas in The Wall, there are dull moments. But at the same time, you also almost need those dull moments to scale back a little bit. And they bit. contribute to the, to the narrative. Yeah, they contribute to the narrative. They tell the overall story. Um, this might be one of the best albums of all time. I'm scared to call it number one because the wall is right there up there with it to me. It's the most easily digestible of their exactly, big four. Exactly, exactly. I would not give animals to somebody and say, this is Pink Floyd, get into it. You're, you're, you're nailing it. So I've talked to, again, a person that's near and dear to my heart about this, and, and she's really gotten into Pink Floyd lately. And she loves animals, and I love her for loving animals because it's not a song to, it's not an album to love. Right. She also loves the wall, you know. And so, and to to to, com to compete with Dark Side of the Moon, the Wall, and Animals, which one is the best? I have a hard time with. It's hard to say that Animals is better than in the Dark Side of the Moon. 
because it's not a conventional pick. I right. still love it just the same, you right. know. Um, but yeah, to me, those three are kind of right up neck and neck with one another with some of the best albums of all time. Well, Kyle, as always, it's been a pleasure. Oh God, thank you for inviting. Me. Um, we could we could probably do another. This a, really other, needed to have been two sessions, yeah. and it may like maybe you can edit it, and it'll be it will be two sessions. But we'll for sure have you back on animals, and if I can make the logistics work, uh, have everybody here, and we'll do um, the wall. I've got a friend of mine that's that's really wanting to do. Wish you were here, so uh, do wish you were here with them. But plug your podcast before we leave. So madmadrigals.com, We talk about. We are trying desperately not to be a music podcast, mm-hmm. but as it turns out, we 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 are mu- we're music people. So right. we, we talk about music a ton, but we also talk about the meaning of life. And how to how to find the meaning of life. And we talk about the broader aspects of life, so philosophy, what is love, what does it mean to be alive, and how can we experience life in a more real way. And so, yeah, check us out at madmadrigals.com. You can find us on, on Apple, on iTunes. You can find us on Google Play if you're an Android person. Um, what's the other one? Spotify. We're on? Spotify. We're on Spotify. And uh, but yeah, I, I think you'll appreciate it. Uh, we we have a good mix. I think our, our tagline is uh, that we're trying to go with was big laughs and deep thoughts. I mean, so we, we have we have some really deep thoughts. We're both. I've got a PhD. He's working on his PhD. Joe, the co-host, and um, we we talk about some really deep topics. But we also take a moment to just laugh out loud, you know, because that's sometimes what you need in life. And music. You, n- Almost always finds its way into it. Absolutely. I mean, it's. I mean, I'm telling you, we ha- we have to consciously not become a music podcast, but we always are talking about music. So once again, thanks to Kyle from the Mad Madrigals podcast for joining us. And uh, if you get a chance, follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed. Subscribe on um, Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud. Follow us on Instagram at Digital Killed the Radio Star. And if you feel so inclined. Go to the uh, GoFundMe.com website, type in Nashville Rock and Pod Expo 2, and uh, donate some money for that. Like we said, it does not go to us. It goes to the people that are uh, presenting uh, the podcast. Just announced this week, Brian Head Welch from Corn will be there, and Vinny Vincent, who has been in hiding for a good 25 to 30 years, will be making an appearance there, and there's some other names that you're going to... Uh, be aware of are going to be there just have not been announced yet uh, michael wagner uh one of the most legendary music producers of all time will be there as well uh would love to be able to have a few minutes with him uh and like i said just donate donate under our name send us send me a message on facebook or twitter say hey i donated this amount of money and we have different perks such as uh you give us an album to review or you pick our topic, or if you can, you will come on here, pick the topic, and be our guest co-host, uh, just like Kyle. Kyle got to do it for free, uh, but if you, <laughs> I'll if, donate some money. But if you want to, uh, if you want to do it, uh, please donate. And like I said, it does not go to us. Chris and I are paying our own way to get there. So uh, that is it for our first installment of uh, Pink Floyd albums. And actually, this is something I want to keep doing with with other artists as well. I, I, th- I think I'm going to entitle it Album Deep Dive. And so uh, this definitely was a deep dive into uh, Dark Side of the Moon, one of mine and Kyle's favorite albums, and uh, just a legendary album that everybody should own if they're a music fan. Uh, Chris and I will be back with you probably uh, probably be about two weeks. We'll be back with you with another topic. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>